dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I am your host as always, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Burns Clan. And as you know, follow at your own risk. And I have to be honest with y'all, I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling good because I think this conversation that we're going to have is going to bless you, uplift, and encourage you. And I'm so excited to talk about today's guest. But before we get to that conversation, let me just make a couple of comments about the last month. Over the last month or so, we have been sharing our Leave Loud stories. And let me tell you, I believe I can speak on behalf of Jamar and Ali when I say, Your comments, your encouragement, your affirmation has been overwhelming. We've been stunned by all the texts and the comments and the messages and the emails, and we cannot read them all. It's true, we can't, but we value each one of them. And it has been a tidal wave of uplift and affirmation and dignity. So thank you. Thank you so much. You know, there are a lot of ways to judge podcast effectiveness. We prefer one over some of the others. Some of the others are you can measure podcast effectiveness by tangible numbers. You, you can talk about downloads, right? In which the last month has been a massive download month, probably the highest single downloaded month in past the mic podcast history. We can talk about iTunes charts and placements and awards, and we've been occupying some of those charts over the past few months. And all those are good and they matter, but we actually value intangible measurements much, much more than tangible measurements. We don't do this podcast so that we can say we have this many downloads or we can say we occupied this particular chart placement on an iTunes podcast chart. No, we do this so that you can be seen, valued, heard, and loved. We do this for you, Black Christian. We do this for you who is wondering how to tell your own leave loud story. We do this for the people who feel like they're stuck. We do this for the people who feel as though no one has ever put words to their experience. We do this for you. We do this so that you can know that you're seen. And if we can see you, how much more does God see you? I hope you realize that that Leave Loud is all about you. And this really was the first phase of Leave Loud. We have so much more to come. And I'm excited to get into what's next. But we don't just want to hop to what's next. We don't just want to hop to all of the resolution. We want to sit in the pain and the lament and the frustration because many of us have been sitting in it for so long. We need to hear it validated. So more to come from Leave Loud, but I'm excited about today because we have a special guest. The Black liturgist herself, Cole Riley, is joining us today. You know, in every generation, there are some people, there are just a handful of people that shape the future of the church, that shape how an entire generation of Christians thinks about faith, thinks about the Bible, thinks about themselves. And I believe that Cole Riley is one of the handful of people that is shaping that conversation that is shaping the very future of Black Christian expression and experience. She is the founder and writer of Black Liturgies. That is an Instagram account. It is a project where she shares words every single day, a liturgy of sacred welcome, a space of dignity, lament, truth-telling, healing, rest, 
and liberation. And, you know, often we look for God in conventional places, right? Every single year we look for God in the sermons and in the church songs and in the worship experiences and in the books and in our favorite theologians. And yes, even in the podcast, those have become conventional places of encouragement. But I believe that sometimes God will meet us most powerfully in the unconventional places. And who knew that a Instagram account with just a few hundred words every single day could be so affirming, so healing, so necessary. So we are indebted to Cole Riley in Black Liturgies for her work, for her example, for her leadership. And I want to encourage you to go and follow her. I want to encourage you to go to blackliturgist.com, find out how you can support her incredible work. I also want you to read some of the prayers, the special prayers that she crafted just for us over here at The Witness. I'll share some of those links in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I did. It caused me to dream. It caused my heart. I felt like my heart was getting bigger (laughs) even during the conversation. And I just appreciate Cole so much. I believe after this interview, you will as well. So without further ado, take a listen to this special conversation that I have with my friend, Cole Riley, right here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28th, 2022 and use promo code 1-2022. That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining us here on Pass the Mic. It's an honor to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Cole, you started Black Liturgies, was it last year? I started in in July, so about eight and a half months ago. Yeah. Okay, so I remember scrolling through Instagram. This is literally how I found you. I remember scrolling through Instagram. Someone had reposted something that you, you wrote. And I said, wow, that is fascinating. So I thought, based upon the presentation, that it was something that had existed for years. <laughs> you know, that's just mm-hmm. what I that's just what I perceived. Uh, mm-hmm. but you started it in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of, you know, this pervasive run of black death and all mm-hmm. kinds of things that are that are plaguing black Christians and, and the black community. What was it like starting this in the middle of all of that? Yeah, it was 
It was comforting. It was more comforting than I expected it to be. I mean, uh, I never, you know, imagined Black Liturgies gaining the kind of traction that it has, the audience that it has. Um, so I was just hoping to connect with other Black people who liked liturgy and was I was thinking if there were 12 of us, you know, who were like in this thing and we could form kind of a micro community and um, it kind of very quickly blew up, as they say. Uh, It kind of um, took on a life of its own in a way um, in terms of me feeling like I had the capacity to post pretty much daily. I was really surprised that I like – had that energy in me and that excitement in me. But it was also very difficult to feel like my grieving in a way, like that my grieving was maybe being consumed at times mm. or mm. Um, that that black grief and rage was being consumed at times. Wow. Wow. And you mentioned the daily expression of this as well. And that's something that we often don't think about, you know, that you have to go through this on a daily basis. And this is coming out of your kind of the well of your own personal life and your own personal spiritual journey. When did you think, oh, okay, I can actually do this on, on like a daily basis? Or have you have you questioned whether or not that's something you want to continue doing in the future? I, I have definitely questioned it. I've... Um... And just thinking, I don't want to just say things to say them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of people say, you know, there's like beauty and repetition. So if you say the thing, the same thing more than once, that's, you know, nothing to sneer at. But at the same time, I think my ideal is to have more than just me contributing um, Mm -hmm. written prayer to the space. Like that's my long-term goal is to have more of a small community creating them so that it's not, um, any one person's responsibility daily. I think that would be really healthy. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Well, let's zoom back a little bit because, you know, you started this in the midst of the pandemic and a lot of people have mentioned that it has blessed them. It's been shared far and wide. What were some of the things that you experienced in Christian spaces that convinced you to even get into this work or showed you that this there was a need for mm-hmm. Black people and Black Christians and, and the Black community to be centered in a lit- liturgical you know, prayer? Yes. Okay. Well, a little, as far as Christian spaces, a little about me. I, I wasn't raised in the church um, or in any particular religion. Um, But in college, I really got swept up in a predominantly white campus ministry organization and a predominantly white church. And um, it took about three years of being tokenized of a lot of friendship and like goodness, of course, but also three to four years of being tokenized of worshiping white historians historical theologians that actually hated me and my skin Mm. before I began to sense a longing in me. And you know what it was? I was going back and forth between college and home, um, which couldn't have felt further apart in terms of race and privilege. Um, I was the first in my family to graduate college, and I just felt like I was navigating two cultures, and that bled into my spirituality. Um, 
But I started to remember, you know, I say I wasn't raised in the church, but I started to remember going to stay with my birth mom on the weekends and we would hit up this black church around the corner for free lunches while she was at work. And I started to just have these memories of hanging outside, you know, like the little ladies rushing over to give us second plates. And it was beautiful to me, but also I experienced that memory as a kind of ache um, as I realized that the the church and spirituality as I was experiencing it then was much more concerned with intellectualism and image and really lacked um, – a praxis of entering into marginalized spaces and learning from oppressed voices and redistributing wealth and resources for deeper equity. So that's when I really began to distinguish my spirituality from the whiteness that was surrounding me in college. But fast forward to last year, you know, I'm Episcopalian, Anglican, and I have fallen in love with the beauty of written prayer. Mm-hmm. But, um, as I began to contend with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the resurfacing of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, it became clear to me that for all my love of liturgy and, and historic Christian prayer, these words written by white men that I was encountering just weren't capable of speaking to my present moment or my blackness in the way that I needed them to. Wow. Wow. There's so much there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that decolonization from those, you know, that white theological authority? Because mm. I think for many of us, we're we're processing and working through, you know, how to do that and how to separate. And you essentially, it seems as though, created something out of you know, a, a place where you lacked something or lacked a centrality or lacked being seen. And you just created something, you know, in the midst of that. How, how do we separate from those white theological authority spaces? And, you know, what were, what was helpful for you in that process and journey? Hmm. Yeah. I think back then I didn't have the language or community to, you know, articulate it as a deconstruction and reconstruction moment. And I really kind of grieve that, um, that I did feel in many ways that I was doing it alone and had this kind of um, Christian loner complex. And I found refuge in a lot of teaching in um, – in black people who had come before me. Um, I mm-hmm. tell students, like, if you can't find a mentor as you're waiting, you know, who can mentor you from the grave? Um, if you're able to have ac- educational access to do that, like, who can you read? And so I, I um, studied English. I'd been reading a lot of Toni Morrison and thought, like, this is a spirituality, um, whether or not Christians – embrace this as a spirituality or the Christians that I know is one is a different thing. But, you know, if you have read Beloved um, and you have read that scene of, you know, baby Shugs in the clearing, uh, there, there is something really healing and something that feels like a spiritual home there. 
Um, but it's hard. It's hard whenever you want to belong to spaces so desperately. I mean, that's what anyone wants, just not just, you know, college students. When you want to belong to anything so desperately, you make accommodations in your selfhood and in your spiritual expression that, you know, God, of course, never asks us to make, but you be- you begin to kind of like idolize the Abraham Kuypers and the the John Pipers mm, and whoever yes. because that's some emblem of like spiritual maturity or spiritual intellect or whatever. Um, and so I had to learn to kind of put that to death in myself, that desire to be embraced because of, you know, knowing this quote or that, you know, that white thinker. Um, but it's a hard process. Wow. That is a word. Um, <laughs> that is a Selah <laughs> moment. You mentioned, you know, the need to belong and to feel like you're part of the space and and being connected to the space and being aware of the latest theology. Did you feel that pressure explicitly or was that something, because I've seen it's different for different people you know, for some people it's, 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 you know, no, I have to stay up on this because of my particular ministry or where I'm located, but other people, they just say, well, I I feel as though I've been implicitly taught that this is, this is right. This is true theology. Mm -hmm. And this is the only true theology. Do you identify Mm -hmm. with either of those or was it something else for you? I, I absolutely identify with, um, the latter part of what you said of just feeling like this is the right way because my parents weren't religious and I didn't grow up going to church or in the black church. Um, I was, uh, I'd experienced Christianity at first, you know, alone in the confines of my own room, honestly. But then when I started to go to church and this operate in these white Christian spaces, I thought that I, I I guess I kind of um, equated my experience in the classroom, you know, being the only one in my family to go to college. It was like, I'm learning all these things in the classroom and I have to believe them and this is growing me. And I kind of map that onto my spiritual experience because it's like, oh, I went to college and I'm gaining all this spiritual knowledge and this is what I should believe. And like, this is mm-hmm. some enlightenment. Um and I like it hurts me even now to think that to think that I felt that the only enlightenment could come from these like white intellectual spaces, even in Christian spaces. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that is so helpful. Um, and I think a lot of people in our audience are going to really resonate with that. I resonate with that. Who were some of the other helpful voices that you found, whether beyond the grave or currently living, that you found some safety in, that you were able to feel seen while you were reading, while there was, you know, this this unique spirituality, even in the the fiction work, as you mentioned, Toni Morrison, you know, and and others. Mm-hmm. Who were some other really safe, dignifying, affirming, helpful spaces for you? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. James Baldwin, just, I don't know, um, to this Mm -hmm. day, just Mm -hmm. even the sound of his voice feels like, uh, a a mere, an experienced miracle to me. And, um, so James Baldwin, Zora Neale Hurston, 
Um, but then I also began to look to um, my friends and my family who weren't Christian, who were from from back home, you know, and maybe couldn't articulate their spirituality or wouldn't call it Christian or whatever, but had taught me things about the world and how people were meant to be seen and how to uh, how to write to yeah how to write to experience life you know my 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 parents taught me that my dad taught me how you know someone should speak to me and mm. so i started to kind of i don't know absorb that into my spirituality or rather believe like that that was forming me that that had formed me spiritually even if they didn't know that it had um, I don't know if that makes sense or if that oh, resonates that makes with you. a ton of sense. Yes, that resonates. Wow. And that is, uh, I think that is also something, a necessary word for us to hear as well. You know, your, your rise to this platform and your voice through, you know, Black liturgies has been meteoric. I mean, you said earlier, you know, it blew up. And for lack of a better term, that's true. For lack of a better phrase, that's what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. You know, before we get into what that means for Black Christians and for you, what does that mean for your personal life? How do you, how do you deal with that? You know, because I can imagine that is jarring. Mm-hmm. You still have work you have to do. You have family. How do you even deal with that? You know, when did you wake up and you realize, okay, I may have to shift some things around. I may have to operate differently, change my rhythms. What is that like? Mm -hmm. It was definitely within the first month. And I I believe in the first month I had 5,000 followers and I began to really think, you know, even if this isn't this huge account, um, there are real people behind 5,000 humans, you know, and to some people that doesn't even count as like, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. significant following. But to me, it certainly was. And so I started to think about it month one um, of how am I going to make this sustainable? And then I think it was the second month, it was uh, maybe the second or third month that I started to ask the question of should I make this sustainable. And that's when I really started to think, you know, how is this forming me? You know, I'm so, so grateful to have my words taken seriously and in and, and public. Um, and it's also deeply terrifying. You know, I'm, um, I'm not naive to how much responsibility this is for a 30 year old, then, um, uh, was 29 when I started, uh, and I'm not naive to how this is forming me spiritually. I, I might not know all of the nuances of how it's forming me, but I'm very concerned about how 70,000 people following someone will affect one's spiritual life and one's sense of self. So I don't know. I don't have the best answer to that. I, I guess I'm just naming that I'm grateful, but I'm very cautious. And like as the numbers climb, I'm going to need to really figure out who are the people um, who will kind of be in my corner to make sure I'm doing the work with integrity and make sure I'm not clinging to something unnecessarily? Hmm. No, yeah. that is that is a great answer. And here's why. And the reason I, I, I asked you that question is because I, I think 
what I've noticed more from people in our general age group who are starting to have this meteoric rise is an intentionality towards soul health and care mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. a pretty firm rejection of this this trend of celebrity Christianity that marks previous generations. And, and we're not above it. But what I've noticed mm-hmm. is that I've seen a really healthy lean towards well, I need to make sure that I'm actually doing this work well, you know, with mm-hmm. integrity, not just doing the work in the most profitable, popular way. And I think it's good for people to hear, you know, those of us in that age group and age range wrestle with what it means to even have platform and mm-hmm. the celebrity Christian idea, which seems, you know, oxymoronic, right? Like, is that, how do you even yes. do that, right? So I think that's actually really helpful to hear that you, you haven't figured that out, but you're thinking along those lines. That's um, very mm-hmm. encouraging. I know for me as, as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you are seen by a lot of people, shared by a lot of people, and your sharing isn't just a Black Christian audience or a Black audience, even though it's called Black liturgies. You know, you also mm-hmm. have a lot of people of color, broadly, BIPOC folks who are who are leaning into this, which is great. But then you have the white gays. And, you know, you were mentioning Toni yeah. Morrison earlier, and you have white mm-hmm. Christians, you have the white gays, and you have people who are sharing it, and they're in the comments. What What is that like? You know, how does the white gays, and particularly, interestingly enough, the white Christian gays, you know, lean in and affect uh, a black project like yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tyler, I I have very complicated feelings on it. Mm-hmm. I I absolutely didn't expect it. I thought, why would all like when it first started happening, uh, which wasn't the first few months. It was like maybe like the fourth, fifth month into it. When it first started happening, I was just thinking, like, why do all these why are all these white people following an account called Black Liturgies? Like, mm-hmm. what is happening? Um, and I think there are, you know, those white voices that I've interacted with on my page that I feel like are there to learn and do the work and, like, be a person of solidarity. But, you know, even today, my post today, someone commented something. It was about rest, Um because we're coming off of a week of a lot of public racial trauma. And a white woman was like, well, how do I deal with rest if rest is a privilege for so many? And I was just Mm. thinking, oh, I just do not have the space to explain to you that like this post isn't about white rest. Um, Mm. And I almost wish I didn't reply to that because – yeah, I think she could have figured that out on her own with a little more space. But um, anyways, I have complicated feelings about the white gaze on my work. I think there is a way to allow people in white bodies in a space without centering whiteness in the space. And I have wondered on a more tender note, I have wondered if there isn't something mysterious, mysteriously healing that happens when a white person praise words written by a black woman, you know, like, is that Mm -hmm. not some kind of spiritual (laughs) miracle um, fixing the cosmos? I don't know. Um, But many of my words are not for them. And and that's just it. Some may be applicable. You know, I've written prayers about anxiety or 
perfectionism, but the majority are not. And I think even with those prayers, a white person ideally would be asking the question, not what does this mean about my perfectionist tendencies, not what does this mean about my anxiety, but what could this mean for a black woman experiencing anxiety? And just to kind of like learn how to exist in a space without being the focus, I think is a spiritual discipline that white people could glean from spaces like, you know, the witness and black liturgies, but it requires a lot of self-honesty and it requires, I mean, it, it begs us to ask the question, are white people even like capable and are they even willing to be in spaces if they aren't centered? Will they think that the space is prohibitive or something in some way if they're not at the focus? Wow. Sorry, that's a bit rambling, no. but oh, that is spot on. And thank you, thank you, thank you for acknowledging how complicated and naming how that is. Um, if I can be transparent, I, I've, I've wrestled with the same thing, even as we do content themes and 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 you know content campaigns or, or focus points on pass Mike or at the witness because there is a sense in which, wow, will we honor the fact that you are listening to the words that we're saying? And Mm -hmm. it's not that we want you to stop in any regard, but, you know, it also knowing that you're listening, it, 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 it does something, right? Like it just, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, well, well, well now in the back of my head, I know that you're listening, right? And what does that do for me? And how do I, heal well enough to not let that change what I say to my people and to my audience. Mm-hmm. And, and and so the wrestle of that is just so profound. I, I don't think people really understand those those layers yet. And I don't even think we do. I think we're still navigating yep. what that looks like and, and how to do it. But you naming that is just so helpful um, for many Black Christians, even, even in the work of justice in a local context, whether it's your local church or a college ministry or whatever it may be. That's difficult there as well. You're still trying to navigate mm-hmm. that. But you know, we're, we're talking about centering Black Christians a lot here at The Witness. And as we think about Black Christians, one of the things I appreciate so much about your work is how you're able to see things that the layers of what we are facing and what you're able mm-hmm. to name the layers of our emotions and also the layers of you know, the, the traumas that we've experienced and so what do you think about this moment broadly for Black Christians beyond just racism? Because I think that's just so so simple mm-hmm. and easy to say. And, and it's it's frankly getting lazy just to say, okay, well, we're, we're facing racism. Well, yes, we know that. But, mm-hmm. but what else are we encountering? And what are some of the things that you're noticing in your work? Yeah. I think I, – I love this question. And I think Black Christians – are and will be uh, encountering this chasm between the Black Christian intellectual tradition and the daily lived Black experience, especially for those who have been excluded from educational access and are, you know, a lot of times sidelined in conversations and consideration of the Black Christian experience, even though they're the ones that tend to form it which is just very complicated. But Mm. I'll say I think that as we've, a lot of Black public voices, as we've learned to survive 
white dominated Christian spaces, I think we've absorbed a lot of values and systems of belief that aren't actually all that necessary um, to the faith and, and some of which are actively violent to other black people. So I, for one, don't believe a person's faith, to, and I'm sure you don't, to be any less robust and beautiful based on whether or not, you know, they know the term ecclesiology or can recite a creed, you know, yeah, right, right. but we sometimes demand that of each other publicly, which is very exclusive. Um, and in our efforts to be taken seriously by whiteness, uh, which for black people listening, we never will be. Whiteness will only ever take seriously a whiteness in us, won't take us seriously. But as we, in our efforts wow. to be taken seriously by whiteness, as we desire that, we begin to elevate voices and people who we think can be a white public Christian's match. Like who can be Tim Keller's match? Who can be John Piper? Who can be whoever's mm. match? I shouldn't call out names, but I am just so disinterested in this. I'm so disinterested in erecting a, a black Christianity, you know, made in the image of whiteness. Um, and I want to be careful here because I know this could sound, you know, black people where I'm from, which I should name is not a suburb or wealthy area. Um, they, they aren't not intellectual, right? I don't mean to set up the black intellectual Christian tradition to say that people from the hood aren't smart or whatever. In fact, people where I'm from, that is a blackness that possesses a rich intellectualism. It's just not intellect accepted by academia, which tends to only accept whiteness. So yes. I think if we want to remain whole as black Christians, as black people of faith, if we want to remain diverse in our blackness and not be reduced, you know, we'll need to begin to make more room for black Christian spirituality that isn't hierarchical based on, you know, intellectual exploration. And just that one that recognizes the need for every form of voice and expression in order for us to get free. I just ordered this book called Hood Fit Feminism and mm. I haven't even opened a page yet, but I was just, when I saw that that book existed, it was just like, a release in me to like just such a relief to know that like we can do this we can move toward um yeah just greater embrace of each other and we don't yeah i i think that's what i want to say <laughs> yeah no that is so so good you know i'm even thinking about this as you know creating content and one of the things that you know struck us and I, I know it struck other people as well is, you know, hey, the way we're talking is not how we would normally talk, right? <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. just not how we would well it's not it's not about the way in which we're talking as as much as how we're explaining concepts and what we've why is it that we have to feel, you know, professorial in every concept? You know, it's like well, why do we have yes. to do that? We're talking to our people. Like it's okay if mm -hmm. we talk in the way that's native to us. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just so it's so fascinating to think about that. And, you know, I really appreciate you naming that because for many of us, there is that sense of, yes, we want further training and development. And yes, we want to produce content, but we also want to be amongst our people and how we produce mm -hmm. content and what what is what is accepted by gatekeepers in certain industries, even, you know, with shape, <laughs> you know, if I'm being transparent, like with shape, how we create that content. So 
hearing you say that, I think is going to be really freeing for people. And a lot of this kind of gets back to healing, right? And what does it mean to be healed? And what does it mean to live mm. from a place of healing? And what what is that? What What does it look like for Black people to be healed? Like, what does it mm. look like for us to experience wholeness? What does it look like? What have you seen that is so important that we may be missing or we may not be considering when it comes to Black healing? Hmm. When I think, when I hear you ask that question, the first thing that came to mind was rest. When I think about Black healing, I think, I think about rest. I think about a kind of existing where our dignity and sense of belonging is so certain that we can lie down without feeling like rest is a threat, you know, like that we can just be in our bodies and minds without being afraid. Now, how we get to that point, how we get healed, I don't know if I have the wisdom yet to say. I think uh, the, the things I feel certain are is that we get there with with all of us, you know, and I know that this can come across as a cliche, but it really isn't. I, I <laughs> Me and my, you know, in my position and how I'm positioned in the world, um, I don't want to be the vo- I don't want to be the voice for the Black liturgical tradition. Not alone, not knowing that there are people who their prayers should should be our artifacts as well. You know, they're. Ha- I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like we we need to learn to kind of see distinctives in one another. I think that is part of healing and to let mm. one another be each other's healers as opposed to, you know, being rescued by any one voice or, or group of people. Yes. Yes. That communal vision of what it means to get there together. You know, this, this mm-hmm. vision of, you know, the, the people of God leaving Egypt, <laughs> you know, together as mm-hmm. a group. Yes. Uh, it's such mm-hmm. a powerful thing. Just two more questions that I have for you, Cole. And, you know, I want to honor your work because it feels like home to us. Mm-hmm. It feels like home. And I think that's why it's resonated so much with Black people and Black Christians. And what is such a testament to your work is it resonates across you know, what I've seen, you know, class levels and denominational and regional and everything, because there's just something about it that feels like home. And mm-hmm. as you try to construct these words and this spiritual reflection, has home been on your mind? And oh. how does it feel knowing that people believe that this work feels like home? Um, it does. It makes me emotional even just hearing that language and hearing that question asked because it does make me think of home, not Black liturgies itself necessarily, but it makes me remember just so many years of feeling like I didn't have a spiritual home and so many years of feeling the the weight of what I've missed and not being raised in the black church um, and just feeling kind of like I was wandering a bit if I'm if I'm honest. And so 
when you use the language of home, it's incredibly healing because I think black liturgies, people always thank me so much. And often I say like, no, truly, I'm grateful to do it. I'm grateful to be able to do it, um, to have this community forming. And I never in a million years thought I would like describe a social media account as like a form of community. Like I was social media's biggest antagonist for a very long time. Um, Uh And so I never thought I would say those words, but it's true that like it has been very healing for me to be embraced by black Christians um, and just to belong to one another and it, you know, if if black liturgies is that space for someone else, um, yeah, it makes me happy. Hmm. You know, I'm always thinking about this idea of dreaming and imagination and reimagining what what could be for ourselves and for others, for us, for our people, for the world. And you know, in this season of dreaming, you know, when when we did the transition here at the witness, you know, I. My, I felt like my dreams kind of came back to me a little bit and hmm. I felt like I was, I found myself daydreaming more <laughs> than what I had before. Mm-hmm. And there's such a beauty in that and a liberation in that, in that moment and knowing that God has abundance for us and that that is possible in our reality. Um, mm. My last question is what do you dream for yourself and for others, for us, what what do you dream? Mm-hmm. What's what is what is that imagination, that moment of imagination, producing for you when you think about about where we are in yourself and how you're you're leading us in that moment, and also just generally for Black Christians. Hmm. I think most recently. Um, I and so many others have been very moved by the Leave Loud campaign The Witness is doing. And mm-hmm. Tyler's not making me advertise this or say this. It's truly <laughs> has been something on my head. <laughs> yeah, for the you listeners, this isn't this isn't prepped. Um, but it truly has been on my mind um because I I have left um a space of what I would call white supremacy in the past year. Um, and so when I, th- my, my current dreaming has been that black Christians would be empowered to, to leave those spaces that are not honoring that, that are past the point of, um, their responsibility. Um, I, I just dream about this like next generation seeing our stories and seeing the stories of people who have left unapologetically and have told the truth and and feel some kind of a safety. I think we're cre- that that creates a very that creates a much safer environment for someone even navigating a white dominated space or a white supremacist space um, because they then know they then know that they can leave and that they have the words for what they're experiencing. Um, So I dream of a lot of people leaving. I dream of an exodus and an exodus that's free of guilt um, and shame. And that has everything to do with leaving, you know, 
the Israelites, they were liberated into a place. They were liberated into belonging. Mm. They weren't just cast out in a million different directions. And Mm. that's the kind of exodus I dream for us is that we would go together into safer, um, more free spaces, spaces of economic and psychological and, and legal liberation, emotional liberation, embodied liberation. I want... I want all of this. Yeah. Hmm. Cole, that is a gift. That is a gift. Thank you. Thank you mm. so much. How can, how can you, I said that was my last question, but I, I, I would be remiss of me not to ask you, <laughs> how can you have supported us? You have given to black Christians. How can we support you? And how mm. can we return that back, that gift back to you? Yes. Um, I think a lot of mercy and grace, um, for sure. I think any kind of public voice comes with a lot of demand. And I, I, I feel this with the, the community of Black liturgies. Um, but I think the greatest gift anyone can give me is like an acknowledgement that you know, we're young and we're figuring it out and we're going to change. And I'm already dreaming of these future scenarios where I am not, um, where I do the wrong thing and to have a community that's really behind me and behind telling me the truth about that and, um, providing space for me to, yeah, be forgiven. That's, that's what I need. I know that's like a future need, <laughs> but I, it is a future and present need because those are the kinds of people I want around me. Um, yeah. Whew. Cole, this has been a healing conversation. Seriously, it has mm-hmm. been. Um, thank you. Thank you for your work, for how you're leading us, your care, um, just the, the careful way you communicate and and share your heart and also how much you love us uh we appreciate Mm. that we acknowledge that we want to give you your flowers now not later (laughs) (laughs) um knowing that you have so much more to accomplish but want to give you your flowers now thank you so much for loving us well oh thank you thanks for having me this has been so so good such a good conversation Mm.